they began to realize that language needs to be contextual and it needs to be spoken. And he see, he says, you know, Mason quotes him in this in this chapter a little later that the the ear is the receptive organ of language and not mm-hmm. the eye. And so modern language teachers really began to run with with these ideas, these immersive and natural and direct method approaches to the language and to give students an opportunity to experience the language and to hear the language and speak the language. And, um, and it really, um, you know, it, it began to change the way that, that people learned languages. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the Home Education Series. Hey everyone, today we're joined by Angela Reed to talk about grammar and languages. Angela is a student of the lang- Angela is a student of the Latin language and has been a Latin teacher for many years before starting to homeschool her five children. She runs the CM Latin Project, a place where she looks deeply into how Charlotte Mason's philosophy translates into the study of Latin. She also hosts the Living Latin Lessons, a place where she teaches children Latin while staying true to Charlotte Mason's principles. We had a great time talking with Angela specifically about the chapters we're covering, but we also picked her brain about both the CM Latin Project and her Living Latin Lessons. So if you're interested in hearing about the work that she's doing, stick around after we finish with our main conversation and enjoy some time with us. So one of the things we do on our podcast is we go through the book chapter by chapter. And the two chapters we're going to be looking at with you are not specifically Latin, but grammar and foreign language. Mm-hmm. And so as we as we begin, I guess it's all all language and all how is language and put together. So I guess let's dive in. All right. Well, and so one of the one of the things that I thought when when I learned that we'd be talking to you and 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 your Latin background is she actually starts here. Uh, she starts uh, she says of grammar, Latin and English, I shall say very little here. She says grammar being a study of words and not of things is by no means attractive to the child nor should he be hurried into it. So the fact that you're waiting until until sixth to ninth grade, that makes total sense, and it fits with what she's saying here. And then a little bit further, she says Latin grammar is easier than English grammar because English, for, for anybody who's learned or speaks English, it's a, it's a ridiculous, real dumb language. <laughs> so, and she was aware of that. She said Latin grammar is easier, a change in the form, the shape of the word, to denote case is what the child can see with his bodily eye, and therefore is plainer to him than the abstract ideas of nominative and objective case as we have them in English. So I thought that was interesting that that she she very quickly picks up on the fact that grammar English grammar is ridiculous <laughs> and and it it's just it's weird. Well, I think it also goes to the the dealing with things as opposed to the abstract and that switch hasn't flipped yet because this book is specifically for six about age six to about age nine 
Mm-hmm. And so that's still in the very tactile, very hands-on how you do things. And, and grammar's not. It's it, You can hear grammar and you can hear yeah. where it doesn't make sense. But to 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 like parse a sentence, um, frankly, I didn't learn official grammar until my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And that could have been because of the way I, I switched schools all the time. But at the same time, I started, my, my teacher started talking about all this and I was so lost. I finally <laughs> went to her and said, okay, I don't get any of this. And I'm going to fail it if, if you don't sit down and talk to me in like the most basic ways. <laughs> So, so yeah, even, even as a senior, that was, that was hard. Yeah. I don't remember when we did Latin. I know we did it because I remember diagramming sentences and, and we did, we did, or not Latin, but, but grammar, we did, we did basic grammar, but we didn't get much further than that. It it got, it got past prepositional phrases and things just started getting weird and (laughs) Yeah, and so we we stopped shortly thereafter because it stopped making sense for mm-hmm. it stopped making practical sense. And I know I know there's a there's a science and a theory behind grammar, but not being a a literary family or or not having a having a drive towards literature or or writing properly. It yeah, there was only but so much we needed. <laughs> And what was your experience, Angela? I mean, ours was very negligent, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I I remember in the my last year of public school before my mom allowed me to homeschool uh, was in sixth grade because middle school was a nightmare. It was just night and day. You go from the innocent land of elementary school to mm-hmm. middle school, like craziness. But the one thing I really remember from that sixth grade year was diagramming sentences. And I thought it was the most <laughs> cool thing ever. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. That's and awesome. then, yes. And then in seventh grade, I was homeschooled for seventh, eighth, and ninth. And my mom did the Abeka mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. You know, out of Pensacola. Yep. And so I'd get these books and you get your lesson plans and you just, you know, you just, you, you just, you just go right it. at it. And I loved my grammar because I could just read the lesson and I would like find all the errors and then I could check my answers in the back and I just progressed through the books. But it was one of my favorite subjects, which is probably why I ended up in Latin later on. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> it it takes all sorts really of people. Appealed. Yes. Yes. But an interesting thing about grammar, like English grammar, and the reason it makes no, it doesn't make as much sense is because grammar as a as a as a discipline applied to English is something that they have kind of retrofitted from Latin. So they hmm. use a lot of the constructions and the concepts and they and grammarians and linguists kind of impose those ideas onto English. English is not a Latinate language. It's actually a Germanic language. Right. So you're you're attempting to kind of interpret one system in light of another. So there are just so many ways in which it doesn't fully um, mesh together. 
Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and so, you know, to, to see grammar as difficult makes perfect sense because there are just so many loopholes and ways in which it's so slippery and it doesn't follow the rules the, one, the way that you were taught it should follow the rules. So does, so English, and you might not know, but this thought just occurred to me, English being a, a more Germanic language, does it fit more closely with German grammar Probably. I've taken some German, but only for reading knowledge. I don't have much knowledge of the grammar, but (laughs) it would make sense to me that it would, um, because the, even the way that the words are formed, they're even formed in the same part of your throat, you know, um, and the, the rhythms of speech are so similar too. Um, but I don't know for sure about the grammar. I watched a movie the other night. What was it? Oh, uh, oh, Stieg Larsson's from, uh, what was that? The, the girl with the dragon tattoo, very adult, very rated R movie. So we'll, we'll start off there. But anyway, it's a, it's a Swedish, it's a book by a Swedish author. They made it into a movie. So I, I've read the books and watched the movie cause I thought it'd be interesting. And, and yeah, their, their speech patterns were, were familiar. It, it felt like I could learn that language relatively easily, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, reading the subtitles, a lot of the words were just there. They said a lot of the words and a lot of the sentence structure felt similar. Now that's Swedish and not German, but, but it's, I mean, that's Northern, Northern European. So I don't know. I, sorry. Random, <laughs> random thought, complete, complete and utter aside. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. So if, if English is a more Germanic language, what languages do come more from Latin? All right. So we call these languages the Romance languages okay. because they come from Rome, uh, the, the seat of Latin. And those languages would be French and Spanish and Portuguese and Romanian and one more. Italian? Yes, that's it. <laughs> that's <like> the five. <laughs> the one where Rome is? I think there was one. I was missing an important one. <laughs> We were going through them, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I have." <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, Is- but you know, we, we've we've heard these, you know, this this concept of romance and or romance languages, and we don't people don't often connect it with this idea of Rome. Is really what it means. It means from Rome or related to the mm. city of Rome, um, the Roman Empire. Um, we tend to think of like, you know, hearts and Cupid and, and all right. That. I, I've always heard them as them as the love languages. Love languages. Yeah. Hmm. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And, and you've not heard of either of these things. I have. I just never, it, it was just like a, a time period for me, the romance time period where those languages came from that time. I don't know. Huh. Interesting. That was, that's where it went in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of when when they all branched out, that was the romance period. So that was, they're all romance languages. That could be absolutely pulled out of thin air, but that's how my mind has always interpreted it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's fascinating. Well, and I know, so I took quite a bit of Spanish when I was in middle school and high school. Don't speak a lick of it. Um, But grammatically, it. Grammatically and phonetically, that Spanish is is a wonderful language. It all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And it all uh, it just it just goes together. It's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so those uh, let's see. That's the first section here. Uh, grammar is a difficult study. So this is Latin grammar. This is first Latin course. Is that the one that you pulled back back to? Yes, that is the one. Um, I I found that little book and um, looked looked it over and 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 thought it was it was a very interesting little book, and it approaches the language. It, it actually anticipates that the teacher is going to be able to do a lot of spoken exercises and oral exercises with with her class. So it is a semi direct approach to Latin, which was kind of an experimental thing at this time in history when Mason was writing. There was this kind of traditional approach to Latin, which was to pound those declensions and conjugations and memorize and and spend hours and hours in translation and parsing and all of that. And there was this reform movement that began to pick up speed in the you know, later 1800s, there were teachers of Latin who were in the classrooms, not just the ones in the in the ivory hmm. towers, but real teachers, headmasters, who began to see what was going on with foreign language teaching in 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 the classrooms. You know, the the, the study of modern languages, um, which was also kind of uh, coming into into vogue and 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 there was a whole science developing around how these languages should be taught so these latin teachers and greek teachers were looking at what was going on with these modern language teachers and and saying we should be treating latin like a language too which mm. means we should be speaking it and we should be interacting in this language and not treating it as this this dead artifact to be examined and classified and and you know, kind of poured over as this, you know, just this, this inert thing. Right. So anyway, there were, there were several reformers, um, some who had association and connection with the PNEU. Mm. And, um, and so this book here is one of these more, uh, progressive Latin texts, which, which, you know, and in, invite students to engage with Latin as a, as a spoken language, as well as a, a written language. So it's been fun. I've I've enjoyed cool. teaching the text. It's it's not perfect, and it's not it's not um, a very easy one for somebody who would who does not know Latin to teach. So I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend somebody going out and buying this book and thinking, okay, I'm going to do Latin this shit Mason way. Um, this book is is intended for um, for a teacher who knows Latin to to implement, and somebody who's got a lot of background knowledge of the grammar who can kind of bring that into the classroom as well. Okay. Do you know if if over the years she had different ones that she would pull from as well, or did was it just kind of this one that she would follow through the whole system? You know what? That's a really a really great question because she actually had two that she rec that she prescribed in her programs. So this is the one that she mentions in home education as one that she really likes because it's a good one for beginners. So it's okay. this very lively, active introduction to the language. But in the programs, she she schedules this one and she schedules another one that is much more grammatical and traditional in approach. So I think that that gave 
that gave people an opportunity to choose something mm-hmm. that was going to be more compatible with their skill set and something that was going to be perhaps something that was going to be more familiar to them. But after this, you know, after beginning Latin, you know, the first year, students would would transition into still a a a a, a living text, but there was less emphasis on this kind of semi-immersive approach. It was, you're getting more into reading texts as, as, as early as, as possible, but you're learning a lot of vocabulary and you are learning your grammar and, um, you are using narration as well. Um, I think that's probably the hallmark of, of Mason's method is that students Mm -hmm. would be narrating their lessons. So they'd be studying a passage and they'd be analyzing it. And then when they were thoroughly done with it, they would close their books and they would narrate it. So they had this facility that they were developing in speaking the language. And I, I think that's amazingly difficult to do. Um, <laughs> as one who was not taught in that way, it's difficult to develop that, that ear and that, you know, the tongue for the language. Right. Um, as we'll talk about when we get to Guan in the we next will. section here. Yeah, we will. Uh, one thing you said that I want to, I want to, m- it's interesting to me. We were talking, uh, we 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 talked through uh, the the math and arithmetic chapter, and one of the things we realized at that point is that Charlotte Mason was using narration in arithmetic as well, mm-hmm. and she's using narration in Latin, and it's something I'm noticing as we're going through these. In every single subject we're doing, she's having her students narrate it. Yeah, it's not just for reading. It's not just for for literature. It's for everything. And and with every subject, it takes a slightly different form. It, it's always a little bit different. But but narration, we, we learn. Charlotte Mason, I, I, I think, really believed that children learn best or people learn best when you narrate back what what it is that, that you read or are doing. So anyway, quick aside, because I, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. My husband likes to have the kids narrate, <laughs> narrate what, when he is giving them instructions for doing something, he, he uses narration <laughs> to have them tell yep. them what it is that dad expects <laughs> you to do here. Mm-hmm. And it's actually very, it's very helpful and very effective. Um, so he's, he's really, um, you know, he's really latched on to narration. It's a very useful little tool. <laughs> it is. Yep. Well, and I just to to further the aside, I remember seeing a uh, a Jordan Peterson, uh, just a a clip from him. And Jordan Peterson is a uh, philosophy teacher. Well, he was a philosophy professor at some school in Canada, and he's since moved on to other things. Uh, He's more of a political figure now. But uh, he was talking about how do you how do you learn something when, when you read it? And I was like, well, you read it, you say it, you write it, you read what you wrote. You say what you wrote, and then you read again what you read initially, and then you say it again. It's like, and by the time you get through all of those steps, you'll you'll know you everything. Know you'll know it. Hmm. And I I remember seeing that going, oh, yeah, narration. That's that's the same thing. This is not this is not something new. You're just taking it, you know, a couple more steps and doing it a couple more times. So, yeah, narration. It, it's it's still there. <laughs> It's not just a thing that that we crazy Charlotte Mason homeschoolers do. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So English, yeah. 
English grammar, a logical study. And this makes me think, again, more of math and arithmetic, where it's laid out how it's supposed to be. And like you were saying, you you would just see it, you would do the work, and then you would check the answers. And if you mm-hmm. did it right, it all laid out in the appropriate way. And it's fascinating how she starts with sentences and the, the entire structure of a sentence mm-hmm. and then moves down into words. So you, so you learn how to divide it into the two parts, the, was that, the subject and the predicate? You know, the cat sits on the hearth and, and use just the basicness of it before moving on to something crazy. Which, you know, the king and the queen in her example are like, well, we don't know what to do here, but give it to the children. <laughs> It'll keep them busy for a while. <laughs> it would keep them quiet. Yep. Which is a goal of parenting. <laughs> so yeah i thought i thought it was really interesting uh how she broke this down she she really breaks it down to she says a sentence has two parts that of which we speak and what we say about it so those are those are the two basic parts of english grammar the noun and the verb mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she has it broken down into lesson one and lesson two lesson one is figuring out how to break out those two parts, what we're speaking about and, and what that thing is doing. And the next one is talking about the, the verb part of it. So I don't, I don't know how much there is to say about these things. I think they're incredibly helpful. I, I think that somebody has published her book on grammar somewhere I've not used it, but I think, I think it exists. I think she has a book on grammar that she wrote and, um, I think it would be a very useful little book to have because I feel like that's, that's one, one area where I have not been able to find a satisfactory textbook to use with my kids for English grammar. I Hmm. guess I could go find those Abeka workbooks. I, when, when we were in high school, my, um, my English teacher had us all get the it's like the handbook of English language from Bob Jones University because we did a lot of Bob Jones stuff. Um, and it was just this little, probably about the size of home education, just a hardcover brown book. And it had all the rules and all of the things to do and and how it worked together. And I kept that for a while. And then it didn't make the cut. And I was like, ah, this can this can go. <laughs> so... John's looking up on the interwebs. Oh, if Mason's grammar is available. Yes. My, my Google foo is not what it should be at this point. Um, I I also had flashcards, and I, I don't know what they were from. I could probably ask my mom, and she would she would know off the top of her head. <laughs> um, but I had I had flashcards too, and or not flashcards, uh, uh, cards for diagramming sentences, and that's that's how I learned the the basics of grammar. Mm-hmm. And I did I did mine a lot the same way that you were talking about yours, where you just kind of do it and you check it. And if you're right, good. And if you don't or if you're not right, you figure out what you did wrong and then you move on. Mm-hmm. So I, I did enjoy that. One suggestion that I've heard, and this is from um, Cindy Rollins and her her mere motherhood book is where she added just a single sentence of grammar in her morning time. Where it was just, you know, you do one every day where you, you diagram the sentence every day. And and that made it very palatable to me. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, this is super simple, super short, 
It's just the consistency of what you're doing, and you can add little bits every so often. Yeah. And that that helped make it more approachable to me. So. Well, I think the simplicity and the repetition is probably is probably the best thing uh, with with me as of you know little experiences I have. <laughs> Well, French, foreign <laughs> language. French. French should be acquired as English is, not as a grammar, but as a living speech. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how they were changing that di- that um, that thought process at that time from just pounding it out to everything being a living text, both with the language teachers and the Latin teachers. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of, it was interesting to me to find out that there was, there was a time during which there wasn't actually a, 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 an organized study of a modern language that, that was something that kind of came into its own. I want to say in the 1800s, people began to apply scientific ideas to language and to develop these systems for learning language. Because before that point, you know, people just, you know, they live in, a lot of people, you know, in Mason's day, of course, you're speaking of Europe. And so people had neighbors and they had intercourse with people who, you know, lived in, you know, across the border in other countries. So we would grow up hearing lots of different languages. Right. And you know, we have a French nanny. And, you know, there mm-hmm. was more natural opportunity for, for, for children and for, for people growing up in this culture um, to encounter, you know, the people speaking in, in different languages. But, um, but it was when they began to apply science to language and develop the field of linguistics, one of the first things they did was, was treat uh, language like Latin and <laughs> treat, mm. you know, like approach it as a, this written thing and to analyze the grammar. Um, but dur- but but there was a point at which, and I think Guan was a part of this movement where they began to realize that language needs to be contextual and it needs to be spoken. And he see, he says, you know, Mason quotes him in this, in this chapter a little later, that the, the ear is the receptive organ of language and not mm-hmm. the eye. And so modern language teachers really began to run with, with these ideas, these immersive and natural and direct method approaches to the language and to give students an opportunity to experience the language and to hear the language and speak the language. And, um, and it really, um, you know, it, it began to change the way that, that people learned languages. They had a, a system for doing it and one that was really showing, showing results. And so, of course, in time, classicists who are usually late to every party, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> the classicists finally caught on and said, oh, you know, that's that's really interesting. I wonder what would happen if we applied this to Latin and Greek. And um, even Guan in his book, um, he believed that these these methods could be applied to Latin and Greek as well. And, um, you know, so interesting. But yes, yeah. French should be learned as a living language, as, as a spoken language, which is, you know, different than, than, you know, the way they, most people would have been approaching Latin and Greek at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was introduced to Spanish growing up. 
actually, for, first in middle school, we actually had the opportunity to live in Okinawa. And so I learned a lot of Japanese. And I it it was because I could hear it and people in school did speak it. I was at a um, international school and the instruction was in English, but Japanese was, you know, obviously the second language there. And uh, unfortunately, I moved to the States for ninth grade and took Spanish. And so I, I can't remember pretty much any Japanese anymore because mm-hmm. I haven't used it. Mm-hmm. But but hearing, learning those, and I can pronounce those, and the words make sense. And then I look at French, and again, with my eyes, I look at the letters, and they just, it <laughs> does not work no, for me. <laughs> at all. It is, it's very interesting how much the ear is so important. And she even talks about this, you know, if we have mm-hmm. to sacrifice something, whether we're sacrificing spelling or pronunciation, we want our children to have the best pronunciation that they can have. Because you can you can train spelling later, and that can come yep. by the way, but you cannot change pronunciation once once you've done it wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Without without great effort. Yes. And and it's it's very interesting not growing up speaking French, not growing up hearing French, to hear children speak English and French and have really, as far as I can tell, really good accents in both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Well, she, she does say here that, that uh, there's hardly another civilized nation so dull in acquiring foreign language as we English, and I'd say <laughs> American, of the present time. But probably the fault lies rather in the way that we said about the study than in the natural incapacity for language. So I think I think we see the same thing now, as they did then, we've moved away from that spoken and and, and ear based system, and we're we're back to to seeing and looking at words and looking at spelling and trying to go from there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she she definitely says the child should never see French words in print until he has learned to say them with as much ease and readiness as if they were English, mm-hmm. because if he's learned how to read English. But doesn't know how up. to speak the French words. Yeah, it's going to trip him up because English and French are very differently pronounced languages. Or they're, they're very differently read. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about Goyne and his method and what he did with that? Uh, sure. Yeah, he... Um, so he really was kind of ahead of his time. I think his ideas were not fully appreciated in the time in which he wrote. And he, he was just a little bit ahead. He was a little bit older than, than Mason. So he was writing and publishing his ideas while Mason was still a young person. And I want to say it was in the 1870s and eighties, but his idea, his story is really, really interesting. This book here that she is referencing here, The Art of Teaching and Studying Languages, is um, is a real fascinating book. He spends the first the first chapter, like 50 pages, telling his story. It's a great living book, you know, to start with a story, a personal narrative. But he talks about how he wanted to learn German as a Frenchman. So he goes to Berlin and 
you know, he's he's going to mm-hmm. he's going to pick up a book from the bookstore and he's going to learn German. So he talks to the librarian and they recommend this Ollendorf method. And so he gets the book and he takes it home and he reads the entire thing and thinks, OK, like I'm going to know the language. And he goes and sits in on a a class at the university and he understands nothing, absolutely mm. nothing. <laughs> so he goes back to the, the bookseller and, and says, this book, did it failed me. What, what, is, what is wrong? And the bookseller says, well, here, why don't you look at and try a different book? And so he, he gets another book and he takes it home and he reads it. And, you know, again, a failure. And he does this again and again. <laughs> and he goes through like three or four different books and then finally he says, you know what? I, I guess I have to memorize the dictionary. So, oh, jeez. <laughs> so he gets this dictionary and he write, he like creates this plan that he is going to learn the whole dictionary, the whole German dictionary. And he like lays it out like if, okay, there's so many pages. And if I break it down, I can get through the whole thing in three months. Oh, um, I think it was three months. It's um, yeah, but, but he had this plan, this very systematic approach. And so he, he invests in it and he goes for it and he does it. He gets through the book and he goes again to the university and again, <laughs> failure. He understands nothing. Oh my. <laughs> right. So he's just like, at this point, I'm thinking this man is crazy. Like he really wants to learn German, but man, he just is so like determined and he's willing to do things that I would never have that much uh-uh. dog- doggedness in my approach. So he mean, goes home. You mean you haven't memorized the dictionary? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and I have not tried. <laughs> I have not, but I, I, I just have to know enough. <laughs> I just have to know enough. And then I learn, you know, I read a new passage and then I look, it's kind of like context, you know, uh-huh, you were talking uh-huh. earlier, you have to have a reason to want to <laughs> hang on to these ideas. So you read a passage and you're like, Oh, what is that word? And you look it up and you're like, Oh, that's so interesting. And then that word becomes a possession uh-huh. of yours. But before that point, if you have that dictionary and you're just like drilling the words, it means nothing. Doesn't mean anything. So, so, we, so we went home. So he went home. He went home, um, went back to France, and he visits his, I guess it's his sister and her her children. So these are his nephews, two small children, and spends some time with them. And he compares the six months prior when he had left to now, in six months' time, the development of language in the youngest child, who's you know two and a half to three, He's just astounded that this child knows much more of French than he could have learned of German in the six months <laughs> since he's been gone. So he begins to pay attention to his nephew and to watch and see, like, what is what is going on here? And through these observations of his nephew, he, he comes to realize this thing about the ear being the receptive organ of language, but also he notices how the child narrates to himself these things that he sees and he's narrating these logical processes. Like he goes to a mill one day, the the child goes to the mill and learn, you know, sees all these things and then comes home and is play acting and reenacting and talking Mm. to himself about all the things that he saw. And it was from this, these observations that Guan said, aha, so we have to teach French, or we have to teach languages. And if I want to learn German, I need to 
reconstitute my individuality into German. So I have to look at these German things that matter to me, and I have to practice, like my nephew, how to describe these things in German. They have to be a part of me, the German me. Hmm. <laughs> I have to make them a part of me. Um, and, and until I do that, I, I can't hang on to them. So hmm. anyway, so that's his story. It, it all kind of came down to this inspiration from observing the child and noticing these truths and these principles in play, which is probably why Mason really, really yeah. appreciated his ideas so much because there were so many similarities in, yeah. in, in principle. Well, and, and that observing the child is very near and dear to her heart. It is. Where that's, that's just, that's what she bases a lot of this on. A lot of her philosophy on is, you know, I looked at the child, I watched the ch children and they taught me how they learn. And then I, you know, put it into a system and, and a method. But, but that, that must've, especially if he was just about 20 years ahead of her, mm -hmm. that, that makes sense where she goes, I'm going to latch onto this. I know it's brand new, but He's following my philosophy of what I believe education is. That's that's interesting. That's mm -hmm. a, that's such a cool story. <laughs> such a cool story. It was story. really really fun to read. I wasn't expecting that story when I owned the book. It's kind of a, a thick book. But uh -huh. we're, you know, again, these these people from these Victorian people, they they had a different sensibility about them when they wrote. They weren't all jargon and incomprehensible <laughs> language. They, they, they told story well, and they saw the value in story. So mm -hmm. I thought it was neat that it opened with his personal story. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and that, that was what she says is one of his first things is, you know, it comes by the ear. And the second point is, right, where when I lost myself. So he establishes two points that uh, the initial idea is that we acquire a new language as a child acquires his mother tongue. Okay. The mm -hmm. second is that. That it's the ear, not the eye. It's the ear, not the eye, which is kind of still the same. And then his third position is that the verb is the key to the sentence and the living bridge between the thought and the act. Yeah. So giving mm -hmm. that emphasis on the verb, which it appropriately deserves. Yeah. Because that's that's how you do anything. Yeah. Well, I thought I thought that her next line, too, is interesting. He, she says he maintains, too, that the that the child thinks in sentences, not in words, and that the sentences have a logical sequence. Which takes us back to grammar, which takes us back to grammar. But, <laughs> but the verb is important and, and the child sees it as a as a sentence, not as a as a broken piece as broken pieces of elements. Yeah, I think this is a this is a really um, important distinction uh, between Mason's approach to language and I would even say a more classical approach to language. Um, I think we there there does seem to be kind of the, this op, these two camps where one camp says you must look at the words and analyze the words first, and then you work up to you know, these sentences and, and, and all, um, what do, what do we call it? Like parts to whole, you know, I like analyze so. the parts of speech 
and then um, and then you analyze the sentences, and then you um, you know, but you got to learn all the grammar, all the nitty gritty grammar first before you can translate and practice. Whereas Mason emphasizing the sentence above the words is, is saying you, you start with the big picture first before you zero in on these smaller pieces of language. So, um, you know, um, a whole to parts approach, which is kind of coming from the opposite direction. It is. And that, that is, is something we talked about, um, in our readings chap- chapter, which yes, hasn't come yes. out yet, but, but it's the same that the two opposite approaches, whether you do it phonetically or sight words and, and and that makes that makes a lot of sense looking at how you do that with grammar and learning languages do you do it the words yeah. the the tiny part first or do you do you just t- get the idea the big idea and it's it's the the oral um the oral grammar and learning how it works and even when she was talking about grammar you have if you throw words together it makes nonsense it's not a sentence but, yeah. but hearing something, you know, I need to hear what you're doing and who's doing what. Mm-hmm. And and that, that's interesting. It is. That's that's interesting. Well, I know somebody, I don't remember who right now, has put out um, Spanish and French in his method for, mm-hmm. for today. Um, I think that's yes. I, I think I know Cherry Dell Press. Cherry Dell yes. Press put it mm-hmm. out. Um, so that that is available if we if someone's interested in taking this method and doing it with either French or Spanish today. Mm-hmm. Cool. Without pulling out the old the the massively thick Victorian era books. <laughs> <laughs> or memorizing the dictionary. Or memorizing the dictionary. Or memorizing the dictionary. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh man, that that sounds like something that. So I'm I'm an electrical engineer, and that sounds like something that any number of the engineers in my office would would do. Like I need to learn a language. Well, let me just memorize the dictionary, <laughs> and they would, and then Gosh. put them in a class, and they probably couldn't speak it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's funny. So let's see. She talks about she talks about the series. Mm-hmm. And she talk she says that uh you you begin to you, you really learn to think in the new language mm-hmm. because you have no more than vague impressions about these acts or facts in your mother tongue. Uh, maybe I need to back up a little bit. Oh, and then the part after that, um, echoing what Guan was saying, you order your thoughts in the new language, and having done so, the words which express these are an inalienable possession. So this idea of you have to be narrating these things that matter to you in this in this new language in order for it to become a part of you and to be something that you know, you actually have now this ability to describe these things. Mm-hmm. So when I was in middle school, uh, I took a family missions trip down to Mexico and uh, we were somewhere right along the border of, of Texas and, and Mexico. And so it was a family missions trip. So there were people of all ages. There were some, there were some college, well, maybe they were only high school. I don't know. There were some, some older school aged girls that were on the trip 
with us and they spoke fluent Spanish. And what was interesting is we would spend all day in the, in they were, they were doing like Spanish school with the kids or Sunday school or something, but they spoke Spanish the entire day. Hmm. And then on the bus ride home, they would have to, they would have to switch. And, and it was, it was interesting because I didn't know it at the time, but during the day they were in the practice of speaking and thinking in Spanish. Hmm. And then, and, and they, they couldn't just flip a switch and, and go from Spanish to English that quickly. And it was, it was kind of funny to hear them try and speak English while still thinking Spanish because everything came out jumbled. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. And that kind of goes towards the end where he says, you know, when children learn these languages uh, by this way, where they pick up the language, whether they have a, parent speaking one and this other parent speaking the third second and possibly even a third they they learn these languages and they have to do that switching yeah. a lot faster mm-hmm. so they end up thinking in a mixture of all of the languages but being able to speak them each individually as required yeah that blows my mind yes completely yeah yeah, it blows my mind. I've 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 dabbled in in a few different languages, um, none to spoken fluency by any means. Um, and I one of the regrets I have from my education is that in taking Latin, I didn't take a spoken language <laughs> because it wasn't a spoken language, so I never <laughs> developed that that ability. Um, but to to think about being able to just pick up and go with whatever language is needed moment. Yeah. Um, that amazes me. <laughs> it does. Like when I, yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible to people that can do that, who can just switch from one language to another and speak flawlessly or, or even brokenly, but still speak it intelligibly. Mm-hmm. It's incredible to me. Uh, I, I, there are a couple, there are a couple of people at work that are, that are, native Spanish speakers and it's fun because they'll get together and, and speak Spanish together. You know, you'll go into the break room and they'll, they'll be sitting at the table talking together and you walk by and they break their Spanish conversation and they talk to you in English and then they go back to Spanish and sit there being like, I, <laughs> my head hurts because you just you, did that. <laughs> we included you and now we are excluding you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's see. What else? It's interesting, his series where you add one more thing, and it's it's going in a logical manner, something that you know. Mm-hmm. It's watching the servant light the fire. And you almost belabor the point. You know, you take the box of matches. But you learn the word takes. You op- She opens the ma- matchbox. Well, you learn the word opens mm-hmm. and all of these words keep repeating because you have match and matchbox all over and over and over and then different words what happens to it the different verbs and and it's 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 an interesting way of thinking about it so one of the things that that struck me as I was looking over some of the series in in Guan's book is how many of the series are are 
are kind of obsolete now in our day. Like even this one, even this one right here, we yep. don't have a servant who's going to light our fire so that we can cook or so that our other servant can cook dinner for us. Um, you know, like, and yeah. I think there's one about the maid going to retrieve water from the well. You know, there are these, these series which would need to be modified Mm-hmm. obviously, but the verbs, the verbs are all good. I think we can use all of these verbs, but the context has changed. Um, sadly, I think ours, our world is so much less interesting. I go and I push the button for this <laughs> and, I go and I turn on this machine <laughs> and then I go and I turn on the button for this. Um, you know, I've, it's just, just kind of a thought of how, how, less interesting (laughs) our our tasks are um but certainly um not not as labor intensive as they as they used to be my servant the dishwasher i push the button (laughs) wait wait i i put the washing detergent in i close the door i push the button (laughs) oh well i was thinking as i read this I was thinking, you know, lighting a fire for for heat. Uh, we had a we had a wood burning stove when we lived in New Mexico, and and that was during the winter. That was every morning was build a fire and make it burn. Well, at this point, we have a smart thermostat, and when you wake up, it's already gotten the house warm. So I I, I guess to make yep. the house warm, you just wake up. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's not much there. <laughs> it, it is it is interesting to, to then think about how how language is changing because of the things that are changing and, yeah. or have changed mm-hmm. where where life processes don't take either as long or are not as labor intensive and how those things have changed us as humans and as us as a human culture. Mm-hmm. So, well, and they've changed so fast in the last hundred years. I mean, we're this, this book is only, only a hundred years old that she's talking about this. And with Guan's, you were saying it's only a couple, a couple decades before that. So hundred and what, 30 to 50 years old at this point. And like you're saying, so many of these are completely obsolete. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they hadn't been obsolete for multiple hundreds of years before that, if not thousands, thousands. of years. So how else do you warm anything but start a fire? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about about how how technology has changed things, and it makes me wonder how how technology is and will change language mm-hmm. over the next fifty to a hundred years. Because if we've gone this far. In the last hundred years, what what's it going to be like in in another hundred? Mm-hmm. And I don't even know. Yeah. Well, that's I think. Then we circle back around to Mason's emphasis on handicrafts and yeah. how important it is for yeah. young people to know meaningful work yeah. and to be able to work with their hands and to um, have a a conception of life in other places and in other times so that they are not bound by the smallness of the world in which, you know, they find themselves. You can think people can easily 
live in a bubble and it's education that drawing out mm, of yeah. ourselves from the bubble into this kind of larger, you know, idea of what it, what it is to be human. And, um, that's, that's the, the good thing I think about what we're all trying to do. So even if we're just pushing buttons, <laughs> yeah. yep. we can read books about children who didn't push buttons. Yeah. <laughs> had to light fires and had servants draw water from the well. <laughs> yeah. Things get perspective, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's the big thing that we're trying to do with our kids is, is give them a well-rounded education and, and teach them all of these different things. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us yeah. on this and um, giving us so much insight and knowledge <laughs> and your expertise. It has been a joy to sit here and talk with you about it this. It has. Uh, thank you. It's been really fun. It was nice meeting you and being able to see you as well as, as <laughs> yes. hear you. Yay, technology. Um, it, I know. Again, I like these buttons sometimes. They <laughs> do such nice things. They come in handy. So, yes, yes. But it was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And um, and I I really enjoyed the, the opportunity. Well, great. Now, before we go, uh, mm -hmm. can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Okay. Um, let's see. I am on Instagram. Um, I Of course, my Latin account is the CM Latin Project on Instagram and my personal account is Athena underscore amidst the reads. And, um, and through either one of those accounts, you can find my, my, my website. Um, it's not really a blog. I don't have a lot of time. I occasionally blog and, and we'll share about Latin things and I'm hoping there'll, there will be more in the future, but that's where my living Latin lessons information is. And that's at Athena amidst the reads.com. Well, thank you very All much. Right. Yeah, Angela, it's been great having you with us. <laughs> thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. One of the first things we like doing is asking, how did you find Charlotte Mason? Okay. Uh, I, I found Charlotte Mason late one night. <laughs> 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 on <the internet. laughs> Where all good things happen. Right, right. Hmm. Um, actually, hmm. to, to, to get to that part of the story, you have to go backwards a little bit. I, um, my degree is in classics and Latin. And um, I went to school with the aim of becoming a Latin teacher. And so I, I did all of that. I got my degrees and my certification. And then um, I taught Latin in lots of different settings, a public school and virtual school. And I taught some in college. And, um, and then I found myself at a classical Christian school. And so a private school setting, and this was a, like a hybrid school. So the students were part-time homeschooled mm -hmm. and part-time students there. And, um, I taught there for a few years and that was my first encounter with, I guess the, uh, a very close encounter with the homeschooling community. Now I had been homeschooled myself during middle school, but we had never been part of a co-op. There wasn't mm -hmm. really this larger community that I had been aware of. 
But through teaching at the school, I got connected with lots of people in the classical uh, classical world of mm-hmm. homeschooling. And when I left my job with when I had children, I was invited to teach Latin for a a homeschool uh, community. Uh, there are some that are like these organized programs. And so right. you buy into a community and a curriculum package and all of that. And I was brought in to help teach Latin nice. and I enjoyed it and um, went ahead and enrolled my young, my oldest in their program. And it was, it was fun the first year. I never thought I would homeschool my elementary school students. Mm. You know, I'm, I feel comfortable with middle and high school. Yes. I feel comfortable <laughs> with hormones. I feel comfortable with Latin, but teach a child to read. Yes. That was, <laughs> that was so intimidating to yes. me. And so I was, I was really excited to have somebody demonstrate for me how I could teach my young child some of these more basic, you know, these, these basic skills, but also things that I just found so intimidating because I felt like I had to be like, you know, a top hat and a dance and song and just you know, <laughs> do things that were out of my comfort zone. Um, however, while that was a great experience, by the second year, I was beginning to question some of the curriculum in terms of whether it was something that I really wanted my child sure. to be spending his time on. You know, did he did I really want him to be memorizing the periodic table of elements? <laughs> um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the answer to that was no. There are so many other things that I would rather he's, you know, us spend our time on. And I feel like I had my training wheels at that point with homeschooling and I had enough confidence to begin to think about moving in a different direction. And it was during a late night computer research session where I was trying to figure out what do I do if I leave this group? How do I do it alone? And I found Charlotte Mason and, um, and I have been on that path ever since. So um, I haven't looked back. I think it was a really great decision to um, move in the Charlotte Mason direction. There's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of, uh, I think, her whole approach to the child and her conception of them as a person Mm -hmm. and do the, a person that is due rich living ideas and nothing that's watered down, nothing that's twaddling. You know, we, we don't want to undersell or undervalue what a child is and what they're capable of. And so, um, I, I think getting to know her and reading through her writings and getting to know the community that has kind of sprung up around her has been a real, a real, uh, wonderful thing to have in my life. Yeah. It's it's very interesting to see how many people find kind of the the classical movement first, and then then kind of see a little bit of something kind of not quite right, and then find Charlotte Mason and go, oh my goodness, this is this is it. So yes, that, that, yes, that key. It, it, it makes sense. It makes it almost like it fills in some of the the mm, the things that just didn't. You didn't, it's almost like you don't know you're missing something until you discover her and you're like, oh my goodness, yes, this is, this is it. Yes. Well, and not only that, you find out that there are some things that are superfluous that you were doing that you just don't need to do yet. Oh, 
like memorizing the periodic table of elements. <laughs> as one example. <laughs> as, as one bright, shining example. Actually, that was something I remember talking last week with, with another guest. Ella. Ella. We talked with Ella about some, I, honestly, I don't remember. But uh, I do remember talking about the, the table, thinking that, you know, I learned it. I tried to learn it when I was in high school, and I didn't. And then I tried to learn it when I was in college, and I kind of did. But it wasn't until, like, my third year of chemistry and physics that I finally went, oh, now I understand, now I get it, and now I know it. Hmm. You know, I, I I tried to memorize it several times, and it just didn't work because it didn't mean anything. Uh, yes. So th- there, are, there are a lot of those things that I, I think are that way that we try and force children to memorize that why 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 mm-hmm. why do they need to memorize it now and even then i still contend mm-hmm. that as a college student why memorize it just to have it on the wall <laughs> just <laughs> it's up there anyway it's up there oh man that's that's funny so how did you how how old is your your child right now my oldest is 11 11 and he'll be he'll be 12 this fall okay and then if you said oldest, that means you have others. <laughs> I do. I have five. <laughs> uh, my So my oldest is 11. And then there's stair steps down. So um, nine, seven, five, and three. And all boys except one girl who's um, the five-year-old. Okay. So she's, she's in the mix. But yes, it's very loud and dirty <laughs> and <laughs> smelly. Uh-huh. <laughs> my house and mostly in the yard i'm taking in the yard <laughs> just go outside there's uh-huh. no walls outside you can you can bounce yes. as much as you want right <laughs> we we have five also um our oldest is almost eight he's seven right now so we've got seven six four and then two and a half year old twins okay so they're they're a little bit more crammed together but <laughs> but it's a lot of crazy and a lot of dirt yeah. yes I, I mowed last night, and now there's all the grass tracked into my house because they were playing outside today. Well, and then we had water on, so, you know, the grass, grass sticks to them. And, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was great. <laughs> so how did you transition from, you know, teaching Latin to pulling back at home and then starting the Charlotte Mason Latin Project? How, how did that transition happen? Okay, so um, I was ready to be done with teaching for a while. Once I had my second child, I was happy to kind of set that down for a little bit of time. Um, So I guess that would have been eight or nine years ago. (laughs) Um, And so I... I think at that point I was so overwhelmed by motherhood Mm -hmm. and, and just doing a good job. I was, I was fully immersed in that for goodness, I guess. Let me back up. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, you know, you get old and then your chronology starts getting foggy and you Uh can't remember when you did what. And then you can't believe how long ago that was. I I, I should have, I should like, look at my, I have like a, like a, 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 you know, when you apply for jobs and you keep track of when you worked where. Yep. Yep. The resume. My my resume and kind of look, um, because I, I taught at the classical school until after my second one was born. And then I took some time off. But then when my oldest was 
about four or five, no, probably five. I think he was five. That's when I started teaching for this homeschool community, teaching Mm -hmm. Latin again. And I was able to do it one day a week. So that was easy. And there was childcare. And so I could just kind of slide in and my kids were taken care of. And, and, um, so that was kind of our entree into homeschooling. And then, um, once we, the second year, after the second year, we, we were home full time. We joined a local homeschool community, um, just unaffiliated, you know, just a a, a mix of, of different styles and different methods and, and people just, you know, united in Christ. So Mm. a Christian community, Mm -hmm. but you know, we all have different styles of doing things. And, And through that, I made friendships and, you know, began to explore the idea of maybe forming a cooperative arrangement with other families who were interested in Charlotte Mason. I, um, I started a book group. So Mm. I have a group of ladies that have been meeting in my home now for four years and through that book group. And then, um, wanting to really learn everything I could about Charlotte Mason that I started interacting in the online world. And I found, other Charlotte Mason homeschoolers through Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that there was kind of like an Instagram Charlotte Mason heyday where there were lots of people and we were all sharing things about our our homeschool days. And we were kind of giving tips to each other about, hey, this is how I do nature study and this is how I do yeah. uh, a map drill. And, you know, there was this kind of friendly sharingness that was going on. And, um, and I... I invited some friends to kind of come together and and share about this in a more organized way. And we we started an account called Charlotte Mason IRL. Mm-hmm. And and it was through that we we were doing this thing where we were hosting themes and, and sharing posts from the community. We did that for about two and a half years. And um and I think it was just in the process of learning about Charlotte Mason and gaining more confidence in the method and then finding that there was a lot of misinformation out there about Latin and what that Mm. would look like in a Charlotte Mason education. Um, I attended a conference one summer and heard a presentation where classical and Charlotte Mason style education were kind of held up side by side. Like here are the similarities, the differences. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when, when this presenter talked about Latin, it was so far off from, from what I knew was true, but I had not done enough research to be able to talk to this person and say, Oh, you know, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Sure. So at that point I was super motivated <laughs> <laughs> to get to the bottom of how does Latin look in a Charlotte Mason yeah. paradigm? And so I, I, created a little baby Instagram account just for that purpose. And I invited, you know, my friends and I said, Hey, I'm going to, you know, research this. And, and over time the account grew and grew and grew. And, and I, I, goodness, it's maybe been two and a half years or so, but I have, um, you know, I don't have anything to show for it in terms of like, here's my book or here's my, um, here's my YouTube channel with a bunch of like videos, you know, a lot of it, I feel like, is just in mm-hmm. my head, and I've talked with a lot of people, and I really have a, a a desire to help other parents 
approach Latin and, and offer it to their children and to like build up their confidence. Um, because I think Latin is wonderful and it was a living part of my own education. And so what that account has evolved into looks like, well, in the, in the future, it's going to look like some, some helps Mm -hmm. for parents. But I, in the process of researching all of this, decided to try and put this research into, into practice. And so I invited uh, some friends to take classes or take a class with me over the course of a year. I've been leading a pilot of a book that Charlotte Mason recommended for beginners. And we've been doing that. We're actually about to, to wrap up this year. And so we will have spent an, an academic year in the book. Nice. And it's been like a living Latin experiment, you know, using this book <laughs> that Charlotte Mason used, you know, knowing that we're going to have to adapt this for a modern audience and thinking through like, what, what is the, what is the real, the real germ, the real like critical component that makes Latin study a living study? Like how is this different from, you know, the ways that, that Latin was approached in the classical schools and, and in these other older texts and all. And so that's what we've been working out. And I've been very, very thankful to have my friends Hmm. be willing to pilot this for me. And, um, and as a result, I'm, I'm going to continue offering um, a class uh, in the fall. So I've been just kind of gearing up for this. And it's, it's turned into um, me being able to teach again, but also thinking through how I can take my, my, teaching, you know, my teaching experience and understanding and help Im- you know, encourage parents so that they don't feel completely lost when it comes to a subject that is often very intimidating. Well, language is definitely something that's intimidating for a lot of people. So, I, I, I as a, um, as someone who is intimidated by language and and doesn't know much of foreign language, I'm, I'm I, I like that. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't have any background in Latin at all. I think I remember when I was pretty young, my mom had like these root flashcards. And that was like either Greek or Latin or I don't even know, but that's my experience. And so having all of this Latin experience that you have to be able to draw on that, as well as your teaching experience, as well as all of that, that's, that's amazing. And that's super exciting. So thank you for, for opening that to everyone. And no. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. <laughs> oh that my is, goodness. That is so cool. <laughs> Oh, I never thought the day would come when anyone would tell me that doing Latin would be a cool thing. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. <laughs> well, here's here's my uh, logistical question. What age sure. do you start this at? Um, my I call it Living Latin Lessons. And I started last year with students as young as fifth grade, but I'm thinking that probably just sticking more to the middle middle school ages sixth through ninth is really kind of where I'm targeting um, students for for this class I'll be talking to you in four years then (laughs) 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 so that's that is that is a really cool project thank you for doing that yeah thank you and Mm -hmm. exploring that and that's awesome so (laughs) It is. 